0: Wouldn't you want to live here, the Abbey of Telemie? This sounds like a great place to be. Listen, quote, there are no laws or statutes. They arose from bed when they pleased and drank, ate, worked, and slept when the fancy seized them. Nobody woke them, nobody compelled them either to eat or to drink or to do anything else, whatever. So it was that Gargantua had established it In their rules, there was only one clause, do what you will. Sounds amazing. Take me there. I'm Roger and this is Bookshook and today I'm discussing book one of Gargantua and Pantagruel by Francois Rabelais, published in the 1530s, translated by J.M. Cohen. So each month I take a book, or in this case a part of a book, and discuss it on the second and last Fridays. I'll do a first impression summary alongside my thoughts and reactions and then raise any interesting ideas so far in the book. Be aware, they may be spoilers. Now, I'd love to share your thoughts and ideas at future episodes. So please leave a comment or start a conversation below. Or If you're listening to the episode, you can send an email to bookshook at yahoo.com. Welcome to Bookshuk. So I've read book one. Now there's adult themes throughout the book. So you've been warned. There's a few expletives in Rabelai's text and I will use the word bleep to highlight when this occurs just so I can keep this podcast clean. Now there's a dedication at the beginning of the book quote the great Gargantua is father of Pantagruel composed many years ago by master Alka abstractor of the quintessence. Now Alcafribus is actually an anagram of François Rabelais. But I'm going to treat him as an imaginary author. Now, the author's note is really funny and self-deprecating. Alcafribus says he wrote it drunk. He also says that philosopher Ennius thought that, quote, Homer's verses smack rather of wine than of oil. And there is an upstart he says as much of my books, but a turd for him. How much more appetising, alluring and enticing, how much more heavenly and delicious is the smell of wine than the smell of oil. I shall be as proud when men say of me that I spent more on wine than on oil as was Demosthenes when he was told that he spent more on oil than on wine. To be called a good companion and fellow boozer is to me pure honour and glory. I love this funny irreverent Alcaphrebus guy who's writing this. Okay, so onto the story. We are introduced to the birth of Gargantua. He seems to be one of these giants written about in the Greek tales. The author of this work, Alcaphrebus tells us to quote, believe that I am descended from some wealthy king or prince of the olden days. If you have never met a man with a greater desire to be a king or to be rich than I have, so that I may entertain liberally Do no work, have no worries, and plentiful rewards, my friends, as well as all worthy and learned men. Me too. The genealogy of Gargantua is discovered by Jean Ando, and this Alcaphribis is set to translate it. At the end of the genealogy is a confusing riddle which even the translator of Rabelais can't quite piece together. Quote, There is very little sense in this riddle though some critics have found in it references to the Pope, the Reformation, and to certain wars. We have not the answer, and probably there never was one. It is merely a parody of a kind of puzzle popular at the time. But here's a flavour of the poetry. Quote, The year will come, marked with a Turkish bow, and spindles five, and the bottoms of three pots, on which the back of a discourteous king peppered shall be beneath the hermit's cloak. The pity of it for one tricksy woman. Will you let all those acres be engulfed? Stop, stop. No one shall imitate this mask. Retire and join up with the serpent's brother. And then we go into a chapter about how Pantagrel is born. And listen to this. Quote, Grand Gouzier married Gargamel, daughter of the King of the Butterflies, a fine, good-looking piece, and the pair of them often played the two-backed beast, to such effect that she became pregnant of a fine boy and carried him into the 11th month. Well, is that Shakespeare? I always thought the expression two-backed beast was Shakespeare, but no, a quick Google, and the expression two-backed beast was first coined by Rabelais and not from Shakespeare's Othello. This is the first recorded reference. Shakespeare must have heard this translation. Now, he goes on to say how 11 month is not unusual in history to create, quote, some masterpiece of nature. Al Gafribus explains how Gargamel ate vast quantities of food before she gives birth and gives quite bawdy descriptions. Quote, what fine fecal matter to swell up inside her. After dinner, they all rushed headlong to the willow grove, and there on the luxuriant grass they danced to the gay sound of the flutes and the sweet music of the bagpipes, so skittishly that it was a heavenly sport to see them thus frolicking. And then the drinking begins. We have a whole chapter devoted to the joys of drinking. Quote Page, my boy, fill this up till it spills over, if you please. Nature abhors a vacuum. Down in one gulp, it's a fine medicine. And then Gargantua is born out of Gargamel's ear. "'I doubt whether you will truly believe "'in this strange nativity. "'I don't care if you don't, "'but an honest man, a man of good sense, "'always believes what he is told "'and what he finds written down. "'Is this a violation of our law or our faith?' Is it against reason or against Holy Scripture? For my part, I find nothing written in the Holy Bible which contradicts it. If this has been the will of God, would you say that he could not have performed it? For goodness sake, do not obfuscate your brains with such an idle thought, for I say to you that to God, nothing is impossible. And as soon as he's born, Gargantua demands drink. And then he is clothed using, for example, quote, 1219 yards of satin. Unsurprisingly, given the ribald nature of this work, his codpiece is described in great detail. Quote, Not only was it long and capacious, but well furnished within and well victualled, having no resemblance to the fraudulent codpieces of so many young gentlemen who contain nothing but wind, to the great disappointment of the female sex. He wears rings on his fingers, fashioned by quote, Captain Chapius and his good assistant Alcafribus. So this is the Alchaphrebus recounting the narrative, surely. Alchaphrebus explains that gargantua's colours are white and blue, The some believe this to represent white, faith, and blue, steadfastness. He explains how just because it's written down in a quote mouldy book doesn't mean it's true. More on that later. In the age of the internet where you can't trust anything you read, this comment seems startlingly modern. He then goes on with a series of references to great classical works. Why, in fact, why it stands for joy, solace, and gladness, and the blue represents, quote, heaven and heavenly things. He recounts how he grows up as a young boy, doing all the silly things young boys do, like, quote, wiping his nose on his sleeve. Nothing changes, but he's obviously maturing very quickly since there are some lewd comments about his member towards the end of the chapter. He tricks some guests into following him upstairs to see the stables, which is in fact his bedroom, where he keeps his hobby horse. Gargantio proves himself to be a real critical thinker. He is a scientist and runs many experiments to see which material provides the best toilet paper. He recounts his experiments to his father, Grand who is impressed. Now remember that toilet paper wasn't a universal thing until its invention in 1857. and From the internet, quote, People used... Sticks, leaves, moss, sand and water, depending on the early human's environment. Once we developed agriculture, we had options like hay and corn husks. People who lived on islands or on the coast used shells and a scraping technique. So Gargantua's experimentations are derived from what is probably a real concern of the day, though here couched in flowery and humorous prose. Gargantua also shows himself a poet to his father which impresses him. He concludes that the best substitute for toilet paper is a quote well-downed goose. Quote, do not imagine that the felicity of the heroes and demigods in the Elysian fields arise from their asphodel, their ambrosia or their nectar as those ancients say. It comes in my opinion from wiping one's rear, my words, with the neck of a goose. Now, seeing that his son is obviously highly intelligent from seeing his application of the scientific method and his poetry skills, he sees he is taught by the best teachers. But the books can't be trusted for their wisdom and so Gargantua does not excel. There'll be more on that later. Grangusia is not impressed with the tuition he is receiving, so he sends him to Paris to study with Ponacrates and Eudemon, a 12-year-old page boy who is one of the reasons Grangusia sacked Gargantua's tutors. He was so well read and spoken. Now, King of Africa sends him a great mare, quote, as big as six elephants to ride on to get to Paris. And when he gets there, he urinates on, quote, 260,418 persons, not counting the women and small children, and steals the bells in the great towers and cathedrals to hang around his mare's neck and, quote, send back to his father loaded with brie cheese and fresh herrings. Now, a man called Bragmato goes to Gargantua and pleads for the return of the bells using copious Latin phrases. My favourite is omnis, clocher, clochabilis, in clocherio, clochando, clochans, clochativ, clochere facit, closhabilita clochante, parisius, habet, clochas, ergo gluc, which the translator says is mock Latin gibberish on the subject of bells. But listen to the musicality of it, like the chiming of those stolen bells. Now, Gargantua and his entourage just laugh at these protestations. Listen to this gorgeous poetry. Quote, No sooner had the sophists concluded than Ponocrantes and Eudemon burst out laughing so heartily that they very nearly gave up the ghost, exactly like Crassus when he saw a jackass eating thistles and like Philemon who died of laughing when he saw an ass eating some figs which had been prepared for his own dinner. Then Master Janitus began to laugh with them and they laughed one against another till the tears came into their eyes from the violent concussion of the brain substance from which were expressed those lacrimal humidities which flowed down along the optic nerve. In this they represented Democritus heraclitizing and Heraclitus democratizing. A brilliant little turn there, more on those later. Heraclitus is a Greek philosopher and Democritus also was a Greek philosopher. Now the bells are duly restored and Gargantua begins his studies, but it's only for half an hour. He then lists all the games he plays in a very long list, reminiscent of Samuel Beckett, this enumeration and categorization. It spans two whole pages. In fact, there are very strong resonances with Beckett. The bawdy toilet humour, the aimlessness of the central character, the categorisation of things. Ponocrates, seeing that his student is being a bit of a waster, employs a guy called Theodore, a learned physician, to see if, quote, it would be possible to set Gargantua on a better road. So an incredible education ensues for Gargantua. It's very much an education based on doing things. Studying astronomy takes place by looking at the stars, not reading a textbook. Again, we have the value of lived experience over the text. The education is certainly very healthy. He eats sensibly now and does lots of physical fitness to complement his classroom education. We then go on to learn how a bunch of cake bakers had a fight with some shepherds because the cake bakers refused to sell them some cakes at the market price. Marquette, quote, the grand mace-bearers of the cake-bakers' guild, strikes at Fourgier, who is just a simple shepherd. And the cake-bakers tell their king, Picresol, quote, displaying their broken bread baskets. And the king is furious, and he starts a war. Now it's interesting how food is a life and death feature of this novel, it marks every chapter, and can even start wars. The constant threat of poverty must have made food a very hot topic during the time. What do you think? And why is food, and the exception of food for that matter, so high on Rabelai's agenda in this novel? Anyway, all the army find in the hills and fields is peace and harmony, but they wreak havoc anyway. And as the army gets ready to take all the grapes from a vineyard run by a monastery, the monks decide to protest peacefully. In particular, Alca highlights one particular monk, There was in the abbey at that time a cloister monk named Friar John of the Hashes, a young, gallant, sprightly, jovial, resourceful, bold, adventurous, resolute, tall and thin fellow with a great gaping mouth and a fine, outstanding nose. He was a grand mumbler of matins, dispatcher of masses and polisher off of vigils. And to put it briefly, a true monk, if ever there has been one since the monking world monked its first monkery. And moreover, in the matter of his breviary, he was a clerk to his very teeth. I love the creation of that verb monked and that list of fine features enumerated. When he sees the king's men stealing the monastery's grapes, he races to the monks for their singing. Quote, the rest of the monks, gaping like so many stuffed pigs, were singing: Inny nim pe ne 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 mum mum im mim mim ko o ne no nay no 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 rum ne num num. That's bleep well sung, he cried when he saw them. But for God's sake, why don't you sing baskets farewell, the harvest done? Once again, Rabelais, through Alcaphribus's account, seems to be saying that the written word is powerless against actual action. In this case, the Latin sung by the monks is Impetum imicorum ne timelitus, fear not the enemy's attack. And this Friar John releases mayhem on the grape stealers, killing them all in a most descriptive fashion. This is why you shouldn't steal Friar John's grapes. This is what he does. First, he shouts, quote, church property is by God and hands off it. And then, quote, as he said this, he threw off his heavy monk's cloak and seized the staff of his cross, which was made of the heart of a sorb apple tree it was as long as a lance a full hand's grip round and decorated in places with lily flowers which were almost all rubbed away thus he went out in a fine cassock with his frock slung over his shoulder and rushed so lustily on the enemy who were gathering grapes in the vineyard without order or ensign trumpet or drum for the standard bearers and ensigns had put down their standards and ensigns beside the wall. The drummers had knocked in one side of their drums to fill them with grapes. The trumpeters were loaded with the fruit and everyone was in disorder. He rushed, as I said, so fiercely on them, without a word of warning that he bowled them over like hogs, striking right and left in the old fencing fashion. He beat out the brains of some, broke the arms and legs of others, disjointed the neck bones, demolished the kidneys, slit the noses, blackened the eyes, smashed the jaws, knocked the teeth down the throats, shattered the shoulder blades, crushed the shins, dislocated the thigh bones and cracked the forearms of yet others. If one of them tried to hide among the thickest vines, he bruised the whole ridge of his back and broke the base of his spine like a dog's if one of them tried to save himself by flight he knocked his head into pieces along the Lamdoid or Stuture. if one of them climbed into a tree thinking he would be safe there Friar john impaled him up the backside with his staff if any one of his old acquaintance cried out ha fried john my friend fried john i surrender he replied you can't help it but you'll surrender your soul to all the devils as well and he gave the fellow a sudden thumping Rabelais was a physician, and it shows in his accurate descriptions of the body. Quote, Friar John showed his muscular strength by running him through the chest by way of the Mediastine to the heart. Now, Grand Guizier, Gargantua's dad, is a friend of this rogue, King Picrechal, and wonders whether he's, quote, gone mad, since he has, quote, broken the peaks and invaded lands he had absolutely no claim to. He sends for Gargantua to help, quote, preserve the country. He also sends out his master of requests, his ambassador, to speak to Pekushol directly. Now, Grand Guzia, via this ambassador, gives Pekushol a right royal dressing down and demands, quote, depart from here immediately and during the course of tomorrow retire within your own territory, committing no disorder or violence on the way. And in addition, you shall pay a thousand gold besants, their coins. For the damage you have done in these lands, half you must pay tomorrow and half on the forthcoming Ides of May, leaving us in the meantime as hostages, the Dukes of Treadmill, Low Buttock and Chuckout, together with the Prince of Itchskin and Viscount Scavenger. Now, Picochol ignores the command and Grand Guizier, desperate for peace, tries to appease him with cakes that were stolen from his lands by those shepherds. But Picrishol laughs at the ambassador, bringing these cakes and saying, quote, "'These clods are in a fine funk. By God, Grand is beeping himself, the miserable boozer. He is not a fighting man. He is better at emptying flagons. My advice is that we keep these cakes and the money and what is more, fortify ourselves here with all speed and follow up our fortune.'" Now Touch Spiger advises that if they are besieged by Grangusia, it could be horrible. Quote Full belly and the dance merry, and where hunger reigns no strength obtains. Absolutely loving this book so far, real excitement, such beautiful poetry. And what is going to happen to Picashall? I'm presuming some violent and bloody death, not unlike the rampage Friar John wrought. Let's see. Now, Picochol's advisors tell him that when he has won this battle, he should go and conquer the world. There is this wonderful flight of the imagination where the advisers describe the victories of Picochol as if it has already happened. Picochol asks, quote, What was that part of our army doing meanwhile, which overthrew the bibulous clown grand Gizier? They're not idling, they replied. We shall meet them soon. They have taken Brittany for you, Normandy, Flanders, Hanno, Brabant, Artois, Holland, and Zealand. They have crossed the Rhine over the bellies of the Swiss and Landsknechts, and a portion of them has subdued Luxembourg, Lorraine, Champagne, and Savoy as far as Lyon, at which place they have found your garrisons returning from their naval victories in the Mediterranean. Time has leapt forward in their collective imaginations, and it's a very rosy victory. Echiphron, perhaps a wiser counsellor, steps in. Quote, "'What are you after with these fine conquests of yours? "'What will be the end of all these labours and journeyings?' "'The end will be,' said Picachol, "'that when we are back we shall rest at our ease.' "'Then,' said Ecrophon, "'but suppose that you should never return from there, "'for the journey is long and perilous. "'Wouldn't it be better for us to take our ease now "'and not run into all these dangers?' Now a very good point, wise Ekrafon. How many times do you hear and see people struggle for a better life based on some mythic fantasy they've created in their head just like Picachol and his advisors here? Now Ekrafon's wise counsel gets shouted down by a swashbuckler. Quote, let's go and hide then in the chimney corner and pass our lives there with the ladies and spend our time threading beads or spinning like Sardana Palace. He was an Assyrian monarch who spent time spinning wool with concubines. The man who ventures nothing wins neither horse nor mule, as Solomon said. Equiphron replies with, quote, the man who ventures too much loses both horse and mule, as Malcon answered. Wise words. I think Malcon is possibly Markolf. There was a medieval narrative called Solomon and Markolf. Anyway, it's good to see Equiphron giving a reality check to Picocholl's wild and optimistic ambitions. Now Gymnast goes off and kills Captain Trippet in an action scene reminiscent of a modern action hero movie. It's really quite amazing. Gymnast, remember, is on gargantuous side. Now I wonder why he's called Gymnast. Is it all these feats? Gymnastic marvels? Quote, Gymnast somersaulted the whole of his body into the air and so came down with his feet together between the pommels, and there twirled round more than a hundred times with his arms extended crosswise. And as he did so he cried in a loud voice, I rage, devils, I rage, I rage. That's enough to put the fear of God in anyone. The troops run away, and then Gymnast attacks Captain Trippet, ultimately killing him. Quote. Gymnast with one blow sliced him through the stomach, colon and half the liver so that he fell to the ground. And as he fell, he threw up more than four potfuls of soup and mingled with the soup his soul. How poetic. Gargantua arrives at the castle at the woods of Vedi. Quote, inside the castle were some remnants of the enemy. And to make sure of this, Gargantua shouted at the top of his voice, Are you there or are you not? If you're there, get out. But if you're not, I have nothing to say more scientific thinking gargantua seems to be reflecting on that age-old question of whether a falling tree in a forest makes any sound gargantua does finally return to his father his mother is written out of the story more on that later and he eats a vast quantity of food and he accidentally eats six pilgrims who are hiding in his lettuces luckily they managed to escape and alca states that this turn of events was predicted in the bible now, Gargantua invites the incredible fighting monk who fought off the grape stealers. He proves funny company and says outlandish things that appear heretical, such as his comments on the disciples after the biblical Last Supper. Quote, The devil fail me if I should have failed to hamstring those gentlemen the apostles who ran away like such cowards after eating a grand supper and left their good master in the lurch. He continues to counsel and give wise advice, especially on time, and there'll be more on that later. He leads them off to scout out the enemy at night and unfortunately gets stuck in a tree where his visor is speared by a branch. There's a humorous scene where he complains of too much chatter from the party and not enough action in saving him. When he is down, he casts off his armour and continues the trip. Now, the monk soon gets captured, but he graphically murders his captors and takes Captain Touchspigot as a prisoner. Now, this is alongside releasing some pilgrims who had been captured by the enemy. Now, Gran treats the enemy Touchspigot well and preaches, quote, "'The time has passed for conquering kingdoms. "'He would have done better to stay in his own domains, "'governing them like a king, "'than to make trouble in mine "'by pillaging them like an enemy. "'If he had ruled his own wisely, He would have increased them, but by robbing me, he will be destroyed. He sends Touch Spigot back to Picresol with gifts and a fine retinue, quote, 30 men-at-arms. He also awards the monk £15,500, but he refuses the money till after the war is over, saying, quote, no one knows what accidents may occur in the meantime and the strength of a war waged without monetary reserves is as fleeting as a breath. Silver is the sinews of battle. Gran has been lenient with Touchspigot. I guess the idea is to turn him in some way against Picrachel, but he has been given a retinue. Very risky. What if Picrachel takes this from his captain? Well, when Touchspigot gets back to Picrachel and persuades him to try to give up the war a right-hand man of Picrochol, Hastikalf, says that Touch Spigot is a traitor to the enemy, at which point Touch Spigot hacks Hastikalf to death. And then Picachol does likewise to Touch Spigot, since Hastikaf was his friend. Now loads of people have come in the support of Grand Guzia. He has thousands of men in his army, and some of Picachol's men, such as Winepincher, are beginning to get worried and Picresol, under the power of the forces that Gargantua is forming against him, goes on the run in retreat to the island of Bouchard. Quote, so the poor angry wretch went off and as he crossed the water at port Huax, where he related his misfortunes he was promised by an old witch that his kingdom would be restored to him at the coming of the cockle cranes no one knows what has become of him since then all the same i've been told that at present he is a miserable porter at lyon furious as ever and always inquiring of strangers about the coming of the cockle cranes Gargantua is lenient with the defeated and rewards the victors who helped him. He offers the monk a number of cathedrals, but the monk rejects it with this: "How shall I govern others when I don't know how to govern myself?" What wise self-knowledge from the monk! Instead, an abbey will be built for him in a completely new way. It will have no walls. The French for wall is mur. Where there's a mur before and a mur behind, there are plenty of murmurs, envy, and mutual conspiracy. And it will have no clocks, more on that later, and men in, and women are allowed. The abbey is described in all its detail. It contains a wonderful library too, carved above a gate as a long rhyme vilifying certain members of society and saying they are unwelcome, such as, quote, lawyers, insatiable and miserly usurers, gluttons and lechers, tricksters and swindlers, mean pettifoggers. Perhaps this contradicts the leniency shown by Gargantua to Pico army. I would have thought Gargantua would be keen to allow these people to share in the knowledge of this abbey. The perfect place for these types of people to learn a best way of living. Anyway, there are no laws or statutes. Quote, they rose from bed when they pleased and drank, ate, worked and slept when the fancy seized them. Nobody woke them. Nobody compelled them either to eat or to drink or to do anything else, whatever. So it was that Gargantua had established it. In their rules, there was only one clause. Do what you will sounds great. And there the first book ends. So I really enjoyed the book. It was a fresh and often amusing look at some of the pressing questions of medieval thought during the early Renaissance period. And as I was reading the book, I did discover a very interesting article by Yvonne Merritt. There'll be a link below. She says that Rabelais had to cope with great changes in religion stemming from the Protestant Reformation and also had to deal with great changes in education stemming from the popularity of great philosophical thinkers. I'll quote her. Listen, quote, The move towards science and humanism and the questioning of the universe arising from Copernicus' discoveries meant that Rabelais felt the immense dislocation of his generation. He used satire, parody and fantasy as a means to cope with this dislocation. certainly raises some very interesting ideas about how to live. I particularly like the tenet, Do what you will. Obviously in this book we've got a huge amount about excess. The clothes are excessive, the yards and yards of cloth needed to create gargantuous clothes. The amount that he drinks and the amount that he eats. Excess is wonderful in this book. Is it because it's set against a world of poverty and hardship? It's certainly a book written for a male audience. There's plenty of talk about cod pieces and members and he refers to his readers by saying quote my boys and when Galgantua returns to his father from Paris for Piccolo's war, Alcrofibra states quote Gargamel died of joy, for my part I know nothing about it and I care precious little about her or any other woman very sexist way of just writing his mother out of the text, obviously written for a male audience and incredibly sexist there's some interesting ideas about the authority of a text when describing the colour of Gargantua's clothing blue and white there's that quote quote, who is telling you that white stands for faith and blue for steadfastness a mouldy book you say that is sold by peddlers and ballad mongers entitled The Blazon of Colours who made it Whoever he is has been prudent in one well respect that he has not put his name to it. He then goes on to quote proper historical texts like Pliny and Aristotle in order to give weight to his theory that white represents gladness. Now he refers to all these canon texts with the assumption that they can be trusted but can they? What do you think? Now, Gargantua does not learn from the text he is given at school. His teachers say, quote, it was better for the boy to learn nothing than to study such books under such masters, for their learning was mere stupidity and their wisdom like an empty glove. It bastardized good and noble minds and corrupted all the flower of youth. I already mentioned that gargantua had quite an empirical way of thinking about the world lived experience certainly matters to gargantua remember he develops his own series of experiments to ascertain the best source of loo roll and impressing his father greatly and there is a rejection or at least a plea to question the validity of the written word especially contemporary texts the greek and roman philosophical tracts seem to be held in quite high esteem quote who is telling you that white stands for faith and blue for steadfastness? A moldy book, you say, that's sold by peddlers and ballad mongers, entitled The Blazon of Colours. Who made it? Whoever he is, he has been prudent in one respect that he has not put his name to it. It's very much an education based on doing things. Studying astronomy takes place by looking at the stars, not reading a textbook. Again, we have the value of lived experience over the text. This idea of rational thinking is contrasted and he has these great flights of fancy imagining how he will conquer all these lands but that's contrasted with Gargantua who's rationally assessing how to unseat Picrichol they use empirical knowledge to form a plan and the advice to Gargantua is that he should quote, send one of his men to reconnoitre the country and find out in what condition the enemy were, so that they might advance to La Roche Clermont with plans formed in accordance with the actual situation. Gymnast volunteered to go alone, but it was decided that it would be better for him to take with him someone who knew the roads and byways and rivers of the district. Some sensible science based reasoning here. Now, Stoicism, the idea of taking the middle path and not pushing your luck too far. You definitely get that with Gymnast when he defeats Captain Tripet. Quote, Gymnast withdrew, being of the opinion that strokes of luck should never be pressed too far, and that all knights should treat their good fortune with moderation, neither harassing nor torturing it. I did notice there was quite an interesting mention about Africa as a completely foreign and vastly far away country where completely other things happen. Quote, at this same season, Fayal, fourth king of Numidia, sent to Gran from the land of Africa, the greatest and most enormous mare that ever was seen. And she was the most monstrous too, since you know very well that Africa is always producing some new monstrosity. She was as big as six elephants. It's interesting, this idea that at this time, great things come out of the land of Africa, large land animals and the idea that it is a factory for, quote, producing some new monstrosity. Seems so alien to modern thinking where we know that evolution is a slow process and we know the number and type of animals that come from Africa. Here, Africa is almost portrayed as if it were modern day Mars. Poetically, I really like the phrase reversals we had. During Friar John's rampage, quote, some died as they spoke, others spoke as they died. And we also have quotes like, lick a villain and he'll beat you, beat a villain and he'll lick you. Now, Alka is incredibly vitriolic in his comments on institutions, particularly the principles of Montague College, he says, should be burned to death. Pretty harsh, I'd say. There's some interesting comments on time before going to war. Gargantua comments on time and clocks. One of my favourites is this quote: "I never subject myself to hours. Hours were made for man, and not man for hours. Therefore, I make mine in the fashion of stirrup leathers. I shorten them or lengthen them when I see fit." And the monastery, remember, was built without clocks. Quote, for Gargantua said that the greatest waste of time he knew was the counting of hours. What good does it do? And the greatest nonsense in the world was to regulate one's life by the sound of a bell instead of by the promptings of reason and good sense. What words of wisdom? I think we could all do with listening to the body sometimes and not just blindly acting by the clock. Is Arca saying, don't be a slave to some. Arbitrary external factor that may be imposed on your life. Listen to your mind and your body and respond to what they want. This book seems to be changing the way I think about external and arbitrary impositions. So all in all, I really enjoyed part one of Gargantua and Pantagruel, And I'm really looking forward to reading Pantagruel for the second half of this month. I'd now like to share some of your thoughts on last month's book, All the Birds Singing. There were some interesting comments on the web and on Goodreads. Evie said, I gave this book a go for a challenge. However, it wasn't my cup of tea and didn't connect with the characters or story. Ending was disappointing too. And Charlotte said, I enjoyed the mystery and suspense of the book. I found the animal deaths hard to read about, but overall it was a gripping story. Anita said a beautifully melancholy story about a woman escaping her past and seeking peace on a sheep farm on a lonely British island. I love the atmosphere of the book and the author's beautiful writing style. The beauty of the book is hidden in small details that might seem unimportant at first but in the end the reader needs it to put all the pieces of the story together like a jigsaw puzzle. Thank you for those comments and thanks very much for listening. If you have any questions or comments, I'd love to hear them. Leave a comment below or if you're listening to the episode, send an email to bookshook at yahoo.com. I'd also love suggestions for future books to read together. Maybe there's been one sitting on your shelf for ages which you haven't got round to reading and you just need that push to get started. Talking of next books, after I've discussed book two of Gargantua and Pantagruel in two weeks, that's the 25th of August, September's two episodes are going to be all about tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow by Gabrielle Zevin. So get that at the ready if you can. Thanks. Anyway, I look forward to discussing book two of Gargantua and Pantagruel. That's Pantagruel in two weeks. That's the twenty fifth of August. See you then. <music>